The following program is sponsored by the National Prayer Chapel. It's time to blow the trumpet in Zion. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress, brought to you by the National Prayer Chapel with Pastor Ray Greenlee. Welcome to Pilgrim's Progress. The children of Israel, called out of Egypt by the powerful hand of God, their whole lives transformed. No longer are they being beaten. No longer are they working as slaves in Egypt, but are now walking with their carts and their donkeys, their livestock, their children. Everybody is free. They've gone through the Red Sea. They've seen the miracles of God. Now I want to show you a way of God. The whole Israelite community, more than a million people, all on the move. They set out from the desert of sin. They travel from place to place as the Lord commands, and they finally camp at Rephidim. Now, every Christian is going to have their Rephidim. Now, what do I mean? Every Christian is going to have their place where God finally brings them, where there is no possible way in their strength or in their power that they can accomplish what they believe they need to accomplish. Whether it's provision for the family, whether it's overcoming a specific sin, whatever it is, God intends to bring you into a place where you cannot provide for yourselves. Now, this is very difficult in the American culture because if we get sick, we have a doctor to go to, and whether he can heal us or not, we go to the doctor and we take the pills, and and then we're comfortable with just slowly wasting away and dying. Many never turn to the Lord for healing. And if a person has a difficult time financially, there's suddenly a great crisis with an automobile. We have plastic cards that we pull out of our wallets and we go in debt. We have many different ways of satiating our life. We can have all the food we want, all the ice cream we desire. We can always go to that refrigerator and find something good to eat to satisfy us and comfort us in the midst of our turmoil. Well, God's got to get past all of that stuff. And he's got to find a way to get a handle upon us. And Rephidim is the place where God gets a handle on his people. Rephidim is that place where Finally, they come to an utter end of themselves. Now, we are going to be going to Hebrews, the 12th chapter, but we need to set this up so that you'll understand what God was doing and what the the writer of the book of Hebrews was really saying to us. At Rephidim, 
There was no water to drink. They were in a dry camp. And they soon ran out of water. Now, a person can live perhaps three days in the in the desert where they were without water, maybe less. There was no water. And the people began to complain and quarrel, even threatening to stone Moses to death because they say, why have you brought us into this desert where our children and our livestock will all die? And now they begin to blame Moses and they begin to test the Lord God of heaven. Now, please understand, you may think you are testing God by complaining about your situation. But in reality, God is testing you. He wants to know what's in your heart. And when things are not going the way you want them to go, what happens in your heart is a reflection of your spiritual condition before an almighty God. Now, I confess, I'm facing some very difficult situations. And this morning, I came in before the Lord in my prayer closet, and I began to lay these out. And I'll be more specific. It is it is not just situations in my life where I need the Lord's intervention. It's this radio broadcast where I need the Lord's intervention financially. It's men and women. It's families in the National Prayer Chapel that need the Lord to intervene. One couple threatening to divorce and my rebuking them and calling them to give up the bitter root that exists in their heart toward one another. I mean, the the National Prayer Chapel is not a group of perfect people. It's a group of people who are on the road. They're on the journey. And I have to confront them even as I confront you. Now, there are some who have come through in great victory, and I'm very excited about their victories in Jesus and their testimonies of the righteousness of Jesus and the way that is expressed in their own personal lives. It gives me exceeding great joy. But there are others who are still struggling who have not made that decision. And so that weighs heavily on my heart. And I come before the Lord, as I did this morning, with tears and lay before the Lord these precious men and women and ask Jesus to have the victory. Now, what happens in our heart when things don't look the way we think they should look reflect back to God what our attitude is toward him. And when I go before the Lord, I come as a humble supplicant I have absolutely no confidence in myself or in my ability. I can't turn your heart to righteousness. I can't turn your heart away from hell. It is only the Lord God of heaven as he uses the words that are spoken 
that he begins to grip your heart and get a handle upon you in some place of suffering or difficulty. If you have no place of suffering and you have no place of difficulty, it's because you have utterly turned aside from the discipline of the Lord in your life. Every Christian, every true Christian, will have a place of great suffering in their heart. If not for themselves personally, then they will have a place of great compassion and love for the lost, and that will become a place of suffering for them as they intercede and cry out for the lost in their family, in their neighborhood, in their community, where they work. It's very painful to see men and women turn to darkness and to turn aside from the living God of heaven and speak ill of Jesus, cursing even his name, causes me great pain of heart, causes me to weep before the Lord for the lost in this nation. The glue that has held America together is being melted away. De Torqueville, the great French philosopher who came to America to see how this scattered people, black and white, Hispanic, Chinese, Asians, how all of these people can hang together how we can become a great nation. What is the secret of our greatness? And his conviction was that the secret of America's greatness is that America, the people of America, were good people. That the pulpits of America burned with fire to call men and women to holiness and to repent. Well, we've long forsaken the pulpits of righteousness and holiness. Now we have pulpits of entertainment, of cheap ditties, of videos, of song and dance. Now, instead of being fed the word of God in the church, most pastors are feeding their people the the apples of Sodom and the straw of Gomorrah. There's no cry of righteousness across the land in America anymore. This has to change. And so I go before the Lord and I cry out to him. The Lord is testing us in America right now. We are being examined by God. So the Lord hears these people crying out, complaining, grumbling. He does not punish them. I want you to note something. In the beginning of the journey, God is very lenient and allows people to question him, to disbelieve his word, to turn aside from him. God allows a great deal of leniency at the beginning of the journey. But later in the journey, if that behavior continues, the Lord will grow very angry. And when the Lord grows very angry, he pulls back. And he allows a person to go their own way. 
and they walk into great destruction and suffering. Now the Lord answers Moses, and he says in the 17th chapter of Exodus, verse 5, walk on ahead of the people, take with you some of the elders of Israel, take in your hand the staff with which you struck the Nile, and go, and I will stand there before you by the rock at Horeb. Strike the rock, and water will come out of it for the people to drink. And we're told in the book of Romans by the Apostle Paul that Jesus Christ himself was symbolized by that rock. Christ was stricken at the cross for you and for me, that the water of life could flow freely to us. Moses did this in the sight of the elders of Israel, And he called that place Massa and Meribah because the Israelites quarreled and because they tested the Lord saying, is the Lord among us or not? And now a key way of God. The Amalekites show up and attack the children of Israel. The Lord will allow the enemy to come and attack us when we test the Lord when we grumble. Now, this is all building up to the children of Israel, finally with their flocks watered, with their water jugs full, their carts loaded down. They go from Rephidim to Sinai. Now, they've been on the road for about two to three months. And now Moses tells the people, consecrate yourselves. Wash your clothes. Prepare yourselves for the third day. Abstain from sexual relationships. Get ready. God is coming. Now the morning of the third day dawned, people being awakened by loud crashes of thunder, streaks of lightning crossing the sky. They'd never seen anything like this in their lives. This was a ferocious demonstration of the presence and holiness of God. Then there was this trumpet blast that seemed to penetrate into the very inner being and cause a man to tremble. It was so, so loud, so penetrating. Everyone in camp was terrified. They were trembling. And Moses led the people out to meet God. They stood literally at the foot of the mountain. Now, Mount Sinai was burning. It was smoke ascending into the sky. They could see the fire. They could see the smoke, the loud claps of thunder, the the lightning strikes. They feared for their lives. We're told in Hebrews 
that even Moses trembled with fear. He was terrified by this demonstration of power by God. As the smoke billows up like a, like a great furnace, they were afraid the whole world was going to be consumed with fire. There's an constant earthquake. The ground is, is shaking. The whole mountain is trembling in the presence of God. And this trumpet keeps getting louder, penetrating into the very heart of these people. They're terrified. They are certain they are going to die. Let me just make one quick note. Jacob learned when he was terrified of Esau that it was not Esau he should be terrified of. It was the man who came to fight in the night. The man that he should be terrified of was not Esau, it was God. And now the children of Israel, they are learning that it's not the lack of water they should be frightened by. It's not the lack of food they should be frightened by. It is by the presence of God that they should be terrified. And they are. Now, just because you have not seen or experienced the terrifying power of God does not mean that he does not have that power. Just because today sitting in this studio all is quiet, does not mean there is not a powerful volcano blowing somewhere in the world. No, we need to understand, just because we don't see God does not mean God is not real. Just because we do not see a mountain burning and trembling and and the earthquake shaking and the fire and the flashes of lightning and the claps of thunder and the great blowing of this trumpet does not mean God does not still have that power. He has that plus much more. Now, this mountain has been set apart as holy. And God has told Moses, don't let the people force their way through to me. Because if they come, I'll, I'll take their lives. And any livestock that happens to wander close to this mountain, you're to stone them to death. This is holy. Don't play with me. We really need to come to terms with the reality that God is almighty. And that he is not satisfied with a man continuing to walk in his sin, believing that God is some pushover Santa Claus. The day will come when every man and every woman who insists on living in their sin will face the terrible fires of hell. The consuming fire of God. We in our puny flesh have the illusion that we are the most powerful. We have no power. It is God who has all the power. So don't kid yourself just because he's absent that you can get away with whatever you choose to get away with. 
Don't pretend that just because you don't see God, he is not real. He has shown up in time and space and history, time after time in the history of this world, and he will show up one more time. And when he comes, it will not just be a mountain that shakes. It will be the whole earth that shakes. It will be the heavens. It will be Mars and Jupiter and the moon and the sun. They will all shake and tremble. And this earth will be burned with fire. Oh, believe me. Please, the day is coming when God will come again. And you're going to be faced with his reality. God now begins to speak these powerful ten words called the law, the Decalogue. Thou shalt have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourselves an idol in the form of anything in heaven above or earth beneath or in the waters below. You shall not bow down to them or worship them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, punishing the children for the sin of the fathers to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing love to a thousand generations of those who love me and keep my commandments. You must not misuse the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not hold anyone guiltless who misuses his name. And on and on through ten mighty words, you shall not murder, you shall not commit adultery, you shall not steal, you shall not give false testimony against your neighbor, you shall not covet your neighbor's house, you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his main manservant or his maidservant or his ox or his donkey or anything that belongs to your to your neighbor. Well, the people hear this and they see this, they see the lightning, they hear the thunder, they feel the ground shaking under them and they're trembling with terror. And they finally call to Moses. Moses, you speak to us yourself and we will listen, but do not have God speak to us or we're going to die. And Moses said to the people, don't be afraid. God has come to test you so that you fear God and will, and he will be with you to keep you from sinning. It was the hope that this terrible demonstration of God's power would be sufficiently convincing that the people would choose to obey the Lord God of heaven and once and for all to put away the false pocket gods, the Pokemon gods that once and for all they would put away their foolishness and they would trust in the mighty power of God Almighty. Well, go with me to Hebrews. Hebrews, the 12th chapter. I want to read for you. Let's be clear. 
The twelfth chapter of Hebrews is the final conclusion of the whole book. And the whole book has been about Jesus is God. He is the Messiah. He came to save you from your sins. The blood of bulls and goats could not forgive your sins. You were simply declared righteous. But now under the new covenant, you are no longer declared righteous. You are literally made righteous. You are made holy. And many today want to maintain the old covenant idea that we are declared righteous until we die. I've shown you the scriptures that prove that to be utterly false. I'll share once more that that mighty scripture. Let me turn to it quickly. I want to read it for you from the NIV because that's what I've been using consistently as I have taught this. In the ninth chapter of the book of Hebrews, it says, But now he has appeared once and for all, that is Jesus, at the end of the age, to do away with sin by the sacrifice of himself. If sin is not done away with in your life today, then you are denying the sacrifice of Jesus and you are declaring yourself to be righteous and you are saying that the blood of Jesus Christ is no more powerful than the blood of a bull or a goat. You are shaming the name of Jesus. If you allow in your understanding that you can continue to walk in sin, to me, you are not born again and you are not a Christian. You are a pagan. Let's be very clear. He says in verse 27, Just as man is destined to die once, and after that to face the judgment, So Christ was sacrificed once to take away the sins of many people. That is literally to lift off of them the sin. If Jesus has not lifted off of your life the sin, the rebellion against him, if he has not lifted that off, you have not been born again. You are still walking in the flesh. You may be a very religious person. You may say, I love Jesus. You may even preach the gospel of Jesus Christ, but you will be preaching a false gospel. You will be preaching a gospel that is not of Jesus, even though you use his name, if you teach that a man can continue or a woman can continue in their sin and be saved. You cannot be. Jesus came to do away with sin. He was sacrificed once to lift up or to take away the sin from your life. He will appear a second time not to separate you from your sin. That's what the Greek words mean, not to bear sin, not to separate you from your sin, 
but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That is, he will come a second time to bring final salvation to those who have left their sin and have chosen to follow after Jesus Christ. Now you'll recognize I am calling for a much stronger Christian faith than most of you have ever walked in. You have you have thought God did not care that much about your behavior. That he wasn't that serious about sin because when he died on Calvary, many of you want to say it was a finished work on Calvary and now all your past, present, and future sins have been forgiven. That is a doctrine straight from the devil's heart, not from Jesus. Any person who teaches unconditional love of God does not know the word of God. They are false teachers. The love of God is never unconditional. It is never taught in the scriptures. His love is unfailing. But that unfailing love is such that if you choose to remain in your sin, his unfailing love will send you to hell. Because it's obvious you don't want to be with him. You you would be miserable in a place that was pure and clean. You love your filth. You love your alcohol. You love your professional sports. You love your entertainment. You love your Pokemon Go. You love the, the video games that are so wretched. You love the magazines and the books that are so wicked. You love the internet and the Facebook page where you can feast on things that are ungodly. All of that is for the pagan, not for the Christian. And if you're feasting on that, you are not a Christian. Let's be honest. Let's cut it straight down the line according to the scriptures. So Christ was sacrificed once to take away, to lift off your life the sins of many people. He will appear a second time not to separate you from your sin. There is no separation from your sin at your time of death. Your last day on heaven and your the last day on earth you will be the same person as your first day in heaven. The only difference will be a new body. But your character will not be changed. Your character is what you take with you to heaven. And if you're not pure here, you will not be pure there. And sin cannot enter into heaven. It says not to separate us, not to bear sin, but to bring salvation to those who are waiting for him. That is, those who are washed, who are clean, who are walking in the fullness of Jesus Christ. I urge you to go back and read again chapter 10 of the book of Hebrews. Now, chapter 11 talks about all of the people who walked this way, who were disciplined, who were treated with great discipline, like Gideon, who finally obeyed the Lord but lost his life in the process, and many others. But then we come to this 12th chapter. Verse 18, 
You have not come to a mountain that can be touched and that is burning with fire to darkness and gloom and storm, to a trumpet blast, or to such a voice speaking words that those who heard it begged that no further word be spoken to them. Today, you don't come to that kind of a mountain. You're not going to see that kind of demonstration of power. You're not going to be terrified by the presence of God. Today, the cross stands as God's final testimony to us. When God himself dies on Calvary for us. They could not bear another word to be spoken because of what was being commanded, what was being said. If even an animal touches the mountain, it must be stoned. The sight was so terrifying that Moses said, I'm trembling with fear. Deuteronomy 9.19. We've not come to that kind of mountain. I want to read in another translation, the Lavender translation, this same portion of Scripture. For you have not come to a mountain being torched and to a fire having been blazing and to darkness and gloom and to a storm and to a sound of a trumpet, to a voice of Ramah's, which the ones having heard entreated that no further word should be spoken to them, for they were not enduring the thing being commanded. Even if an animal may touch the mountain, it will be stoned. Now the thing appearing was fearful. Moses said, I'm terrified. I'm trembling. We don't come today to that kind of a mountain. We've been brought into the presence of God by the Holy Spirit. Now, those of you who who are washed, who are clean, he says, you have come to Mount Zion to the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Is that your present experience? It is mine. I recognize this is not my home. Oh, I love America. I love the American people. I pour my heart out in prayer for them. I pour my heart out for you on this broadcast. I pour my heart out at the National Prayer Chapel. But this is not my home. My home is the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Now it says you've come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly to the church of the firstborn whose names are written in heaven. That's you if you're washed and clean. That's you if you are pure of heart and mind. You've come to God, the judge of all men, 
to the spirits of righteous men made perfect. To Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant. And to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I want to read this for you in the Lavender Translation. But you've come to Mount Zion, even to a city of a living God, to a heavenly Jerusalem, to countless thousands of angels in joyful assembly, to the church of the firstborn. Are you a firstborn? God doesn't have grandkids. You have to be firstborn. If you're not firstborn, you have no right to the birthright of heaven. You must be born again or you cannot enter into heaven. That's what Jesus told Nicodemus. You must be born from above. You must be transformed into the likeness of Jesus. Have you been transformed into his likeness? Or do you still carry the the root of bitterness in your heart that drives you to fornication and to every other kind of sin and every other kind of wickedness? Or has your heart been purified by God? To the church of the firstborn, having been written in the heavens, has your name been written in the heavens in the book of life? If you're still walking in sin, your name is not written in the heavens. It's not written as the firstborn of God. You have to leave your sin. You have to be washed and made clean by the blood of Jesus. This is not human effort. This is submission to Jesus Christ. This is walking away from the world, the flesh and the devil. This is what it means to be Christian. If you have not walked away from the wickedness of your life, you are not a Christian. You can be very religious and you can go to church all the time. But you're not a Christian. In that Mount Zion, you come to God, the judge of all, of all men to the spirits of righteous men having been made perfect. Have you been made perfect? Have you been made pure of heart? Or are you still walking in your sin? Are you still making excuses for your sin? Are you still justifying yourself and saying, oh, but when Jesus looks at me, he doesn't see my sin? Yes, he does. And if you continue to habitually walk in that sin, there will be no place for you in the heavenly realm. And you will not be one of the firstborn. You will not be allowed into Zion. When we come to Zion, we come to Jesus, a mediator of a new covenant. If you look at Romans, the eighth chapter, 
Let me read it for you. Romans, the eighth chapter, verse 13. By the saying, a new covenant, he, that is Jesus, has declared the first obsolete. Now the thing being made obsolete and growing old is near disappearing. There's a new covenant now where he comes and writes on our hearts his commands. Where God writes on his heart what our behavior is to be. Now listen. And to Jesus, a mediator of a new covenant, to the blood of sprinkling, speaking better things than the blood with reference to Abel. Remember, we spoke about Abel in the 11th chapter of Hebrews. Abel was a righteous man. He brought to God a more abundant offering than his brother Cain. He was murdered for bringing that abundant offering. But the offering that Jesus brought was an even better offering because Abel was just a human being, but Jesus was a God-man. He was fully God and fully man. And he brought an offering of blood that can totally wash away your sin freely. Wash away your sin. Now, Jesus finished his work on Calvary. What was his work? His work was to make provision for your sin. That provision has been made so that your sin can be removed from your life by the blood of Jesus Christ. He did not forgive you for your future sin. He did not forgive you for your present sin or your past sin. But when you come to him and you confess your sin, when you repent of your sin and you allow him to begin that process in your heart, he will remove all sin, past, present, and as you walk with him into the future, even if you on occasion slip and fall, John, First John, the first chapter tells us that he will be a mediator with the Father, that he will forgive us for our sin and he will cleanse us from all unrighteousness. So it's not something that we continually do. It's not a habitual sin. It's something that in the passion of the moment we get caught with. But if we repent, he will wash that out of our heart and we'll never have to deal with it again. You must see to it that you may not reject the one speaking. For they did not escape having rejected the one warning them on earth. How much less will we escape 
the ones turning away from the one warning from the heavens whose voice at that time shook the earth but now he has promised saying yet once more I'm not only shaking the earth but also the heaven now the phrase yet once more makes clear the removal of things being shaken as of things having been made that the things not being shaken may remain you see we have an unshakable kingdom in jesus christ kingdom is royal authority being exercised over us does jesus exercise his royal authority over your life now let's look for a moment in the minutes we have left if in reality we look at what happened to the Jews who stood at that mountain, who were terrified by the thunder and the lightning, who were terrified by the darkness, who were terrified by the fire, who were terrified by that trumpet that penetrated into their very hearts, where they said, we will do whatever you say. Those same people turned and rejected the living God of heaven. They refused to enter into the promised land. And finally, in their rebellion, they were sent back out into the wilderness for 40 years to die. To die! That whole demonstration of power did no good. It did not convince them. This time, there's going to be no great demonstration of power. You're going to simply have to look at the record in Scripture. You're going to have to study the Scripture for yourself. And as Pilgrim, in the story of Pilgrim's Progress, read the Bible and began to understand, he began to understand that he was living in the city of destruction and that it was going to be burned with fire and that he and his family were going to perish if they did not turn from their sin and enter the straight and narrow path and walk under the discipline of God, the testings of God, until finally they reach the celestial city. Now please, if you have not yet made a decision to leave your sin, it's not enough to make a decision, I'm going to follow Jesus. Many, many followed Jesus. They followed for the loaves and the fishes. They followed because it fed their hunger, and they were entertained by the, in, by the healings and by men being raised from the dead and by the teachings of Jesus. They were entertained but they did not surrender their lives to Jesus. Many of you have religion as your hobby. You like to go to church. You like the fellowship with people. You like the entertainment, the song and the dance. You like the sense of, okay, I, 
I'm spiritual now. I'd like to go to church. I'm spiritual now. But you've never been willing to give up your sin. Your life has not changed the way you deal with your workmates. Your life has not changed in the way you deal with your wife or your husband. Your life is not transformed in the way you minister. You still walk in the flesh. You still lust after the things of the devil. You love the world and the things of the world. You're not a Christian. Not until you are born from above. Not until you humbly come before Jesus and surrender your life. And go through the process of being born from above. Of being transformed into a new person. By the power and the blood of Jesus Christ. What decision have you made about Jesus? What decision have you made about following him? Are you going to follow the culture and traditions that you were raised with? Are you going to follow Jesus Christ? Are you going to step out and say, no matter what the cost, I will follow Jesus. I am going to sell out now to Jesus Christ. I'm going to follow him. I'm going to serve him. And I'm going to seek righteousness. I'm going to seek holiness. I'm going to seek purity of heart. What are you going to do with Jesus? Now you can blow off this message, but I'm telling you now, you're not going to see a mountain filled with fire and you're not going to see all kinds of signs and wonders. You've heard a straight message calling you to repent of all sin, to be washed and purified by the blood of Jesus, to walk without sin now. You can say, that's not what my preacher teaches me. I urge you, look at the scriptures. Check everything I have said out of the book of Hebrews, out of the book of Romans, of Galatians, of Colossians. Look at Jesus' teaching in the Sermon on the Mount. Hear the word of the Lord today. Almighty God, I pray for every person who has listened to this broadcast. I pray, Lord, that you will pierce through the darkness and every lie of Satan by which he has deceived your people and caused them to walk in wickedness. I ask that you pierce every lust for darkness. I ask that you pierce every lust for that which is unclean impure, filth. Would you pierce it now in the name of Jesus and would you restore your people and would you call them to righteousness, to holiness, to purity of heart, 
Lord, thank you for your kindness. Lord, let your name be lifted up today. I pray in your holy name. Amen. I invite you to come to the National Prayer Chapel. Some of you need to come where you hear a straight word. You need to drive whatever distance you have to drive because until you get among godly people and hear the consistent teaching and are held accountable, you're going to have a hard time by yourself. So I invite you to come to the National Prayer Chapel. We rent space at 12 o'clock noon every Sunday at the All Saints Anglican Church. And the address for the All Saints Anglican Church, 14851 Gideon Drive, Woodbridge, Virginia, 22192. The All Saints Anglican Church is a wonderful family church. They've been very kind to us. I invite you to come and worship with us. Now, please, go to our webpage, nationalprayerchapel.com. This video will be available this evening as soon as YouTube processes it. Podcasts will be available. This message will be up this evening. God bless you, my brother, my sister. I'm eager for you to leave your sin and walk clean before God. I'll talk to you soon. Before the presence of His glory